This is a Federal News Network podcast. Customer experience emerged as a federal technology issue for agencies this past year. An executive order from December of 2021 kicked the effort into high gear with a focus on data, systems, and services. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now to look back on how CX and other initiatives left their mark over the last 12 months. And Jason, this idea of customer experience really crept into the lexicon for the federal government in the past year, and that coincided with digital transformation, which was ongoing. Did customer experience impact digital transformation? Of course it did, Tom, because I think agencies with the executive order and the president's management agenda, it's one of the three pillars of the PMA, really drove how agencies thought about their data, how the systems connect, how the interagency works together. I I think it really brought this idea of how agencies serve customers and citizens and businesses and the like really to a new level. I spoke, Tom, with eight former and current federal executives, right? Jonathan Albaum, former CIO at the Agriculture Department, now at ServiceNow, and Duncan, the CIO at the Energy Department, Mike Hettinger, former Oversight and Reform Committee staff member in the House. Everybody, almost to the T, pointed to customer experience as one of those key issues that arose and really came to prominence in 2022. Tom, you and I remember back in the Mark Foreman days when we talked about three clicks to service. And I think what's different today than it was 20 years ago now was this idea that the technology, the people, the process, all are much better, much more understanding. And that really has been clear in 2022. And it's really how agencies are approaching it. And I think that was the big difference in 2022 around customer experience. Sure. And there are the customers, too, (laughs) that pay the taxes to keep all this going. And it's good that they do think about that. Part of that is the expectation, too. You're absolutely right, Tom, that there's a higher expectation from the federal agencies. And I think the pandemic over the last couple of years really drove that home for agencies to say, oh, we can do things differently. We have the technology. We have that understanding to deliver those services differently. Right. It's not your granddad eGov anymore. And (laughs) beyond customer experience, what do you feel were the top technology initiatives? I mean, there's a long list, but let's let's start with the top few. Tom, we could talk about cybersecurity all day long. We talked to my colleague, Justin Doubleday, who probably talked a lot about cybersecurity. So I'm going to shift away from cybersecurity a little bit and offer a couple other things. One of the things that I heard, for instance, from Ann Duncan, the Energy Department Chief Information Officer, she pointed to the artificial intelligence community really responding in a new way to federal use cases, coming together to talk about, okay, what do we need to do? What information do we need to share? How does that outreach work? And I I think that's really a, a different take than we've heard from a lot of agencies about AI. Because a lot of the concern was, well, AI is just predictive analytics, or, well, it's not really AI, it's, it's just data analytics with a new skin on top. And I think, I think she's saying, well, actually, it's not. We, we really have made a fair amount of, of good progress. The other thing I'll point to is something that I, I heard from Jonathan Album, the former CIO of the Agriculture Department, now over at ServiceNow, and he pointed to major IT and data modernization initiatives in the healthcare world across the federal sector, whether it's CMS or FDA or NIH or CDC or just HHS more more in general, the fact that COVID drove a lot of these changes, now they're applying these learnings to the pandemic, and again, driving things like customer experience, going back to that, but also more broadly, the digital experience for agencies and for people who use these services. And then finally, Tom, what I heard several times from people is the fact that DOD actually awarded their cloud contract, the JWCC Joint Warfighter Cloud Contract Replacement for Jedi. I think a lot of people, which I was surprised by because these aren't necessarily DOD folks like Janet Vogel, the former CIO at HHS, actually highlighted that as a major accomplishment because it shows 
shows that consistency, getting commercial companies involved, simplifying contracting activities is obviously a good lesson for all agencies to heed. Right. And I think people were surprised by how fast DOD came back from the shootdown of Jedi to get to that award. It wasn't another five-year type of thing. You're absolutely right. But it's also, I think they saw the handwriting on the wall that if they tried to go down the path of a single award, if they tried just to say, well, we'll award it to x now but y z and a later that was going to cause them a lot of protest pain and you know from for a lot of us tom we saw the handwriting on the wall for years to say just make the award to everybody because that's the best way to move forward quickly. <laughs> yeah there's always the GWAC. and looking at across these this range of uh, initiatives jason anything that surprised you by not making so much progress i can think of a couple or that really did well that were a surprise a lot of the folks I talked to highlighted cybersecurity. Again, Justin Doubleday will talk a lot about that. But I thought what was interesting is, is folks looked at uh, a big challenge around, for instance, supply chain security that emerged for 2023 and, and the use of software supply chain. I think that was one of those areas where folks were like, hey, that's a bigger deal and we need to move maybe a little faster around that. The other one I'll point to is workforce. And Tom, I don't think you and I can have a conversation with industry, with government, without workforce coming up. And I think, you know, for how big of a concern it is, for how agencies need more project and program managers, something we've heard for years, more cloud architects, something we've heard for decades now, more people in the cybersecurity world that they haven't made more progress to fix this problem. I know our colleague, Jory Heckman, talked about some new pay authorities coming from OPM around specifically uh, IT, the 2210 series. That should come to fruition in 2023. But that still has been, why has it taken so long when we've known that's been a big problem for years? And then the last thing I'll just point to, Tom, that I think uh, was pointed out to me is the partnership, the collaboration that really emerged and how agencies really see themselves differently in terms of, oh, I can work closer between agencies, among agencies. And Duncan, again, that Energy CIO was very interesting. She pointed out to the Justice 40 initiative, which is something that the Justice Department is leading from the administration to really bring diversity, equity, inclusion across the government. And she actually said, listen, that was a big deal in terms of how the interagency got together. And I would say, you know, electronic health records is probably something to keep watching in the coming year because that's pretty much across the board. If you back out VA and Defense Department and Coast Guard, there's not much of the government left in some sense. You're absolutely right. I think there's something, you know, there's there's some movement for, uh, it's all stories about, for instance, NOAA or National Weather Service may be looking at this electronic health record. And obviously the Coast Guard may be looking at this electronic health record in some way. So I think that's going to be another one of those topics where, again, DOD and VA continue to struggle. They haven't quite figured out the, the solution to getting a modernized electronic health record. We had plenty of stories from that over the year, as well as lots of commentaries from folks who said they're going about the wrong way. They're going down a path that's going to waste billions of dollars and they should stop. So again, you're right. Uh, it's just a little surprising that that didn't do better this year, made more progress and a lot to watch in 2023. And you also spoke with the federal CIO herself, Claire Martirana. What did she highlight as important and accomplishments for the past year? I asked her, what are two specific accomplishments you're most proud of, whether it came from your office or within the federal IT community? Because I was trying to get away from those platitudes that we often get about efficiency and effective government and collaboration, blah, blah, blah. She pointed to a couple things, and, and, and one was the the way the White House, OMB, and agencies, including CISA, work together across the cybersecurity executive order really to push forward the tools, the, the support necessary to 
deal with this uh, ever-evolving landscape of cybersecurity. She obviously highlighted the zero trust strategy and the, and the progress made there. But the other thing she mentioned was the investments in the workforce. Uh, she said approximately with 60% of all IT projects failing, she says, we not only need to do better, but we have to show others that we can be better. And she pointed to the Technology Modernization Fund as, as one example of how agencies can do better. She noted the significant evolution that the TMF has gone through. For instance, Tom, since the billion-dollar award through the American Rescue Plan Act, in 2021, they've handed out almost $518 million in those two years, including another $52 million just in 2023 alone. And obviously, the most recent ones, USAID, getting money to develop new customer relationship management and the Railroad Retirement Board to digitize phone and paper processes and make it easier for beneficiaries. So those are the two most recent ones that just came out earlier in December. Some progress, some things to work on. We'll get you back shortly in a few days to talk about what's ahead. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his ongoing reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they are they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. 
you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day. But, uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. And, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly 
revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.